Welcome to Conservation Today. We interview people about our environment in Oregon, and I am your host, Francis Etherington. Today we are speaking with Kai Husky with the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund. Kai, say your name for us and tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, no, thanks. Uh, thanks, Francis, for having me. Um, yeah, my name is Kai Hushka. Uh, I work as a senior staff member for an organization called the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund. Uh, we've been sort of an odd duck in the world, I suppose, of, of legal stuff, because we tend to do more work in the realm of education, awareness building, and grassroots organizing support, of which the legal stuff sort of fits in. So the, the legal, in some ways, takes a back seat, which I think is uh, is good And as we all continue to have our community issues or community fights, try to do good. Um, you know, the laws work a certain way and unfortunately not not for us in the environment like we'd like. Is this an uh, Oregon-based organization or is it Pacific Northwest or? We are a, a national international group. Uh, we tend to have, uh, at least in the past, people located in specific regions where there's been uh, initially request for help. So, you know, the, the phone rings and you know, we've got this issue going on and we need some help. And as things have evolved, that's sort of had us identify where to put resources, including personnel. So I've, I've been working in, in Oregon now with Oregon communities uh, since about 2012, all kinds of issues from pipeline project that was going through literally through your back backyard to uh, the expansion of genetically modified seeds to fossil fuel projects you know, to really to timber practices on, on a number of different levels. So, well, that's a lot of issues. Now I imagine that there's one issue that ties all those other issues together. What is really the crux of the problem that you work on? Yeah, no, it's a, that's, uh, I think exactly right. You have something happening in your community, um, that you are concerned of either things that have been going on for for decades that have been sort of unaddressed or largely feels like often you're being ignored despite the mountain of evidence you know to the contrary of things that have been made legal you know or it's an impending project you know like the the pipeline project that was proposed for southern oregon that was the um jordan cove pacific connector pipeline project that wanted to bring gas from canada and build a big pipeline across Southern Oregon to get the Canadian gas to the Pacific Ocean to ship it to Asia. And with all their rights of eminent domain, it, that certainly took a whole community there to, we killed that project. Yeah. I mean, obviously it, it, there's, there's so many good outcomes to this idea of, of when you have something that's clearly against basic common sense and there's the mobilization to, to speak up for it. Um, just shows the power of of the people to 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 mobilize and and be that reasoning force. You know, to your question of what kind of pulls all these things together, it's it's ultimate really how that structure works. So unfortunately, this the structure of fossil fuel project approvals, the structure that approves uh, industrial, you know, factory farms, the approval process that works for timber practices, the approval process for uh, a whole slew of things, including things like, uh, you know, worker protections or worker rights or wages, you know, they'll operate under the same system of law, which is largely built to make it very difficult to almost impossible for the community level to have any real say, you know, that the power is coming from the top down. Uh, they're dictating to the community level what things are going to look like. Uh, and ultimately, the unfortunate reality is any of us who've been activists for a while and and follow these things upstream, you know, we come to see, well, wow, you know, we see why we have the situations we do when big industry owns, or at least seems to command the attention of our state legislatures, or, you know, commands the attention of Congress. And if we have a system that is built where authority comes from the top down, it starts to make some sense that why we run into so many difficulties, why, unfortunately, we end up really losing more than winning, it is really how the structure is built. So this is what ties all those issues together to kind of that one thing that you were speaking of. And so our, our job has been largely about helping communities come to understand that and to be advocates for wanting to, to change that. Um, so in some ways, I can say the issue doesn't matter. Um, it's really about the structure of the system. And if maybe we start coming in together to change that structure of the system, 
we can better address then those particular issues that that matter to us the most or that are we're most passionate about. Isn't the structure of that system capitalism? Aren't you talking about capitalism with all the laws? I think that is a, a great way to capture sort of in a synthesized way what we're dealing with. And of course, with capitalism, you have uh, a hyper focus on extractivism uh, and control and then ultimately this cycle into consumption for consumption's sake, and then that repeats itself. You know, it's the it's the cycle that keeps repeating itself, and that is very much what our, unfortunately, what our our governmental system is built upon. It's what our legal system is built upon. It's what makes it's what makes the economic system hum. Right? Um, everyone wants to follow the rules. You know. Uh, but those rules are so often written by the economic interests who want to perpetuate, uh, you know, the capitalistic sense of the world, uh, which I think you and I have, you know, come to understand for quite some time is, 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 is really unnatural, right? I mean, it's, it's completely ignoring that we're part of our environment. We need the environment to be healthy, uh, not just for our sakes, but for all the other creatures and species that rely on healthy ecosystems. And if you have a economic system, a legal system, a governmental system that sees itself somehow separate from that, um, it's no wonder we keep fighting so hard. Uh, and despite what feel like wins here and there, the, the cumulative effect is, is not a pretty sight. Uh, and I think that's again, where we try to circle back people towards saying, well, if that's the system we have, call capitalism, call what you want, is that the system we really want? Um, and of course, there's all kinds of myth built around it and, and indoctrination into that. And, you know, we're the greatest country and, you know, the, the American dream. And we all get to profit from capitalism. And if it's not capitalism, oh, it's communism. And I think that's also been part of the reason why the system's so well insulated. As soon as someone even questions that maybe the system itself is the problem, uh, we've then been very well trained to then say, well, the only options are these other things that have been labeled as as evil, right? So the the socialistic models or the communistic models or whatever, and suddenly it sort of stops the conversation uh, without even really some deeper thought about whether or not you know those manifestations were truly what really communism, for instance, was really about or what socialism could really be about, or are those even the right terms for it? Because if we get locked into, into terms and suddenly we, we just say, well, nothing we can do because everything's been tried and you know, let's just do the best with what we have. And I get it to some level in the human nature to do that, but the truth is that system has not been around very long. It's been imposed upon us. Um, unfortunately, it's very well built and it's gonna, it's serving to be very difficult to get rid of. Um, but I'm of the mind it's possible. Um, and clearly there were, we had human systems that had a much better relationship to place uh, and found ways to interact with other communities and found a way to have viable commerce without it actually destroying the very life forces that provide for us. So it can be done. I think it ultimately comes down to a, a number of things, right? What's the plan? Can we come together? They're on some central ground with some sort of uh, uh, collective values. Um, can, do we believe it's even possible? Can we organize to actually make it happen? And the great thing is we have things in our own history, at least socially speaking, uh, but also places in other parts of the world where there's been the mobilization of the people to really say, hey, enough is enough. The planet deserves something very different. And so that's the exciting part is I think it's, it, I think it is possible. The question is, do we have the confidence to start going there regardless of, you know, the insults that will be heaved at you by saying, hey, hey, capitalism is a disaster. <laughs> uh, and then people saying, well, what's the alternative? Um, and, and just sort of pushing through that to say, well, maybe there are pieces here, pieces there, but let's figure it out. Let's not just rest on our laurels because capitalism is literally taking us over the falls and not just us, but thousands of species, ecosystems itself, you know, the planet will survive in some form, whether we'll be around or not, I think is, is, is highly questionable right now. You mentioned that some other countries have tried to move in the right direction. Do you have an example of that? Yeah, I feel like um, there's some great 
um, examples, like living examples coming out of South America, for instance. So something related, directly related to our work has been about evolving the legal reality that nature, that ecosystems must move from the property orientation that the law sees that as today. So in very simple terms, nature is property, nature is a thing. Uh, and we have many, many laws that are more about deciding how fast and to what level you undermine the viability of ecosystems. We have some that try to go a little further to actually legitimately try to protect the ecosystems, but far too many that do really the opposite because we don't, we don't value it, at least within the legal system, the governmental system, and probably to a level society and culture doesn't really value nature as it should. So we continue to enslave it and we continue to abuse it. We continue to control it. What has evolved through work of ours and others now is, is really something called the legal rights of nature. So to to take nature away from property into that of being rights-bearing. It is both a new and an old notion. The old part is this is very much how traditional people, you know, had a relationship with the natural world, that it wasn't lesser, it was equal in some case of more value than, you know, than human communities. And therefore that was a big piece of why they were able to sustain the, the health of their ecosystems they were a part of. The new part is, you know, Western law you know, back to your, your capitalism framework, you know, wants to see things very linear, very mechanistic. It wants to basically control, you know, land and the resources as property. It wants to protect that for the use of commerce, right? So that all that property stuff, you know, the permit that gets issued, you know, to the timber companies, well, that's property now, you know, the commodified trees that they grow, well, that's property. You know, all of it is about protecting property in the, in the, in the, with the intention of having it feed the commercial system with the intention of the profiteering that you mentioned. We see why we're in the situation where is if that is the preeminent system. As legal rights of nature has emerged in places like Ecuador and Bolivia and Colombia, you know, it's, it is about this shift legally and even really more important culturally to say, well, wait a second, we can't keep extracting because as we do, we keep destroying, we keep undermining the viability of our own health. Therefore, we need to place nature really at the center. And that then becomes the decision-making point for what is allowable and what is not. And it's a very new realm. It's not one that's been along or long, around very long, um, but they're starting to be, you know, practices within, uh, the law within sort of case studies that are starting now to come out that I think are going to have real impact on the ground, right? So as one example, there was a Canadian mining company wanting to mine in a particular place in Ecuador. And one level of government had issued the permits to allow it. Someone brought legal challenge saying, well, wait a second, if you do this, you are violating the rights of that ecosystem. You're also violating the rights for humans to have access, you know, to clean water. You're violating, you're violating the rights, you know, to, to a healthy environment. There were a number of constitutional provisions that then allowed legal action to be taken. And the courts found that yes, that those permits would be in violation of those rights. Therefore, we are going to rescind the issuance of those permits. Can you imagine if you could make that argument today in the US to say, hey, that pipeline coming across all, all these watersheds is a violation of those watersheds right to exist, persist, flourish, and naturally evolve. They look at it, yep, end of story, right? I mean, think about all the anguish of the you know 15 years worth of activism to sort of go into the regulatory system to try to make this argument and this and that, you know, what a different world we'd be in. So I think that's one example of things we can be looking at is, wow, what would that look like if we start actually making that happen here um, I think is one piece. The other thing I think that South America is demonstrating is really the, mo the mobilization of people. And I think Chile has been a great example of the mass mobilization of people. I mean, literally taking to the streets to call out the injustices of government. And by doing that over a number of years, initially with students, eventually was many, many more people were joining to sort of call out uh, the overreach of government. And remember, they have a, a constitutional construct that came out of the Pinochet regime that was really about hyper-capitalism. So if we keep on the theme of capitalism, they were saying, well, the U.S. Constitution is not capitalistic enough. We're going to make one even, even more so. 
It has so many provisions in there that are even more anti-democratic than the U.S. Constitution. Lots of supermajorities, you know, a lot of extraction focus, all about, you know, money, money, money. Let's make the wealthy even wealthier. And this was what the people were up against. And despite the odds, you know, they forced the uh, a constitutional convention, so a, a really a constitutional rewrite to say we want a new governing document. And through the mobilization of citizen groups or citizen assemblies, that all started to feed into what do we really want? And um, if your listeners haven't seen it yet, it's, it's a pretty uh, uh, impressive document that they came up with around you know, healthcare rights and worker rights and environmental rights wow. and rights of nature and wow. a very rights forward, very socialistic, very you know, communal type constitutional construct. Um, that then was put in front of the voters uh, in September, unfortunately, as we've seen in politics. And when you have a country where the media is all controlled by the government and you still have the powers that be, uh, unfortunately, they managed to convince uh, the people who were overwhelmingly in support of the new constitution to actually vote it down. So they've sort of been left stranded. So despite it not being adopted, I think those are other examples. Uh, Ecuador's had mobilization of national strikes to force the government to the table, you know, forcing open new potential for something that isn't based on the capitalistic mindset. Like we don't have to settle for that despite the odds it may be around changing that. We should never settle. We should keep pushing for that. And I think I find that to be inspiring for possibilities here, whether it happens, you know, in Oregon in small pockets, whether it happens somewhere else, eventually that ideally that all comes together. But I mean, that's how movements build is people asking hard questions and not letting go of it or not being satisfied by just what the system may provide them here and there, uh, that it's really the system itself that has to be radically changed. And I think that's 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 the pathway we have to we have to figure out and put energy towards. Right. I mean, here in Oregon. I know a lot of folks are upset about the rights of the timber industry because it really affects us all down slope from the clear-cut slopes where they aerial spray nasty chemicals including atrazine which has been banned in all of europe and used with impunity here in oregon when we've tried to change the oregon forest practices act allowing this in the past the timber industry has come back and said well if we can't log certain trees you have to pay us for that loss we we own that land and that those trees belong to us and we've invested money in there and we're going to get our money out and if we can't get if you're going to if you're going to stop us from getting our money out of our land then then you have to recompensate us in other ways and so it can be very expensive to change the Oregon Forest Practices Act i hugely appreciate you framing it the way you just did because that is when we talk about the system and the structure it's to that level right so the capability of, of a single corporation in, in a lot of cases to demand what the state can or can't do and ultimately the impacts that it will have on the ecosystems and the people that are part of those communities can be dictated by one corporate entity um, and the reason they can do that is because the constitution and court decisions have allowed the capability of the corporate form to wield tremendous power. So your example there, there's a couple of things that get triggered. One is, you know, you, you have to be justly compensated for the taking of your property. And that is what one of the big arguments they would make is, is all right, well, if, you, if we can't do it, you're, you're literally taking our property away and we therefore can't benefit from being property owners. Therefore, you have to justly compensate us because you are the government and we are considered persons under the law, just like you and I right here. Uh, the other thing that corporations can also add in is something called future lost profits. This, so they can add another scoop on top of that by saying, well, if I were allowed to log this for the next 30, 40, 60 years, this is how much money I would have made. And if you're not going to let me do it, well, then you're going to have to pay me the equivalent of what I would have made in, in future profits from not doing that. So this is, a, this is a big piece of when people go into the system and again, commonsensically see that we want it to be different, why it's so difficult, not just for us, the citizen activists, not just for our county government, if they're of the right kind of mind, but 
the state itself and even the federal government very often are subordinate to the engines of capitalism, which is the large corporate form. And we have emboldened them, meaning the government has emboldened them. And then everything's built around actually more protecting that world than it is really protecting the things that we think it should be protecting. So all those agencies that do the permitting and all the agencies that do this are largely there uh, for the corporate pursuit with minimal capabilities of doing what we thought they were there for, which is to protect us, the environment, and all those other things. And so when we say we have big root level changes to make, that's what we're saying. Like that's the level we have to go to. Otherwise you keep uh, playing a game, an unfortunately deadly game at, at a, not even a disadvantage. It's like, it's almost like you're not even part of it, right? Like you get to observe the game and maybe if you're lucky, they might call on you. And, and that has to change. Like where's the, where's the real, if political power is inherent in the people. And if we believe that we have you know, governing power and that if, if government doesn't provide, we have the right to alter, abolish, you know, or change it, which is in the Oregon constitution. It's the first thing in the first article, section one. Does that mean anything if we're unable to do that? You know, does that, has that lost its meaning, for instance, you know, in practices like trying to change the way that forestry works, if we're, we're stymied that bad, you know, is government really built in a way that we can support anymore? I mean, these are big questions to begin to ask, and especially for those that have been at it uh, for years and years like yourself, or, you know, people like Carol Von Strom, you know, up along the, the Oregon coast, the, the, all the things that she has seen. And, and she's an extremely wise person adds to the scientific reality of what you just described and the chemicals used, but also has a very healthy understanding that we're, we're, we're trying to operate in a rigged system. And it's that system itself that needs to be contended with. And this again, if, if we can get the different issue arenas to see that structurally we're all running against that same system, if that mobilization to actually occur, I, I think we'd actually have real force to begin to really deeply change things so that if we're going to have healthy forests, including access uh, to, to, you know, to logging, because, you know, it's a viable resource, right? People can, can use that, and, but we can do it in a way. And there's, I know there's people like Ernie Nemi and others there in Oregon who, who speak to the way to do it sensibly. And there's probably, I know there's working examples of forests uh, being logged in a sensible way and not in this industrial way. So it's not about cutting humans off from ecosystems. Um, it's about the understanding that we're part of it, but we can't exceed our boundaries. As soon as we have, we do, we see what's happening. And of course, uh, you have this, this, you know, formless yet from a legal perspective person out there in the corporate form. Um, it's, 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 we're, we're literally living like a sci-fi movie. Um, it, there's, there's so many parallels. Most of the timber industry in Oregon today is owned by Wall Street investors it used to be family you know family companies but they have all 90 percent of them have been bought out by wall street investors so we're run by big money investors um instead of by local families as far as the timber industry goes i mean that's also a big piece right we've been indoctrinated into the sense of property which is which is not a it's not a very old old i think in the way that it's being uh operated now right it's a fairly new concept that you can sort of you know own nature right again if we go back to first peoples um and many today still understand that you know they don't own it they're maybe stewards of it they may have relations to it they may have obligations and responsibilities to it and so therefore they feel like they own it but they own it from a different you know from a different orientation than what the you know the legal system says well i own this Therefore, that comes with it the right or the capability basically to destroy it. You know, that's a that's completely opposite to what yeah. you know, we would think ownership should should be, that it should be more about responsibilities to preserve it and protect it for its right. own sake, not to be able to destroy it. But that's the upside downness of it. So rights yeah. of nature, I think, is about really writing that chip to, to redefine sure, perhaps we'll have a system which people continue to own things. But now we're putting very different kind of limitations about what could happen there. And that's that's the big piece, right? There's there's very few limitations about what those hedge funds can do in relation to 
you know, living, living systems. Um, and then the, the community rights realm, you know, in some ways it's unfortunate because we also get into this nature and then people realm. And I think it's so difficult to, to get us to really not separate those things out. So for, <laughs> for years, you know, in our work, we would, when we would say community rights, we meant rights of nature as part of the community that people and nature are really, should be seen as one, but things have taken off in such a way that rights of nature is sort of standing on its own, but ultimately we have to see ourselves interlinked is, is really the, the crux of it. Well, it is interlinked because we are nature, people. Correct. Our Correct. nature, and you know, the studies from the timber industry practices show that you know when when they that that these young tree plantations that they put all over the landscape it makes our landscape more fire prone i mean they're increasing our fire danger by their forestry practices and they're also increasing the water shortages so they're decreasing the water summertime water flows when they clear cut a certain amount of watersheds these are all scientific studies that we have less water in the summertime and we have a greater fire danger by their practices that are in our backyard, literally. And so we would like rights of nature because we're part of nature. We want our rights to have our water and our, our safety from fire. Yep. Yeah. And that and that and that begins, of course, then to probably, you know, if you if we can like if we were to fast forward to say that we now have this reality, right? Which is I think uh, always a fun exercise because it should keep the juices flowing, right? <laughs> so you have this now, you know, of course, being this is about culture, being this is about behavior and changing big, you know, long set behavior is not an easy task. You know, I would guess initially the, the work would be about holding those to account saying, well, no, 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 you know, we're living a different existence here. You've overstepped your bounds, you know, please, you know, get reconnected to what you should be connected to. But ideally it, it should over time, if we were to subscribe to it, our, our own behavior collectively would change where we would we would understand not to ever go to the point where we are threatening and undermining the very things that that provide life for us and, and everything else. So I think that's the 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 powerful thing of what legal rights of nature is providing is this this connection point, maybe this bridge, whatever the metaphor you want to use, into the possibility of a different existence. So it it confronts the current means of, of capitalistic ways head on, but then also demonstrates behaviorally what needs to shift. And I think part of that, as we also, you know, were to live that, we have to really connect with place, perhaps more than we do, right, with one another, with where we're at, which then is going to shape what those places look like. I mean, think about, you know, using the, the timber stories we've been talking about, you know, what if we did have sustainable logging going on and then what if it was you know locally owned locally controlled not corporate control by investment companies and what if then not only did it have economic viability for people sort of working in that industry but what if we didn't offshore you know the debarking of the logs or the turning of those logs into products what if we actually begin to bring that back to where it was where we started to do things in the place where it's coming out of for the benefit of that community and perhaps then you know others that are also dependent on that particular resource like we basically uncorporatize the system so then that we're localizing it in a manner that is going to be healthy and truly sustainable and viable you know we i think we begin to try we begin to solve not only the environmental realities that we see industrial timber but we we actually are starting to solve some of the economic too right I mean, there's so much inequality with, you know, hyper corporatization right. and with that, you know, the socialization and the civic engagement and all these other things that come from basically living in nature centric existence of which we then own, we become responsible for, uh, we become advocates for, um, I think that is, that is where we're needing to find ourselves because the model that we have now, which is again, not just as you know, it's not US based, it's global. Um, and it's it's a very, very powerful force. But I think with the right mindset, right pressure, um, the right kind of challenges, we begin to put you know chinks in the armor. And I think that's again the 
the exciting part and the promising part of rights of nature taking hold as it has in places like India or New Zealand or South America or Canada or Mexico City or wherever it is, um, you know, these are all openings for, for things to grow from. And I think that that's a good thing. Um, it, it hasn't really gotten to the point to compete with the global capitalism, but I think it has the potential to be a very, very um, formidable opponent and hopefully one that is powerful enough to, to basically dismantle that, that system that really is, it, it's a plague, right? It's, it's, it's plaguing the, the planet and, and we have to just, we have to be done with it and, and confront it like, like it is, uh, like it is the plague. <laughs> Absolutely. You mentioned those other countries. Do they have more, do they lean more toward having a rights of nature? The other countries you just mentioned, India and some others? Yeah, I, you know, it's a good question about what sort of the underpinnings I know in places like um, Mexico City was a, a, a local law. So somehow there was a convergence of lawmakers and citizens there that, that understood the importance of, of rights of nature and made, you know, enacted a law. Uh, Ecuador, you know, was a constitutional rewrite. So they had this opening. Uh, interestingly enough, Ecuador has gone through many constitutional rewrites, uh, which is another thing that that we buy into this myth that somehow we have the greatest governmental document ever written and it's, it's untouchable. Old. <laughs> it's old. Or, it's old. Or you even have people like, and he's got many, many faults himself, but people like Jefferson who understood that we needed to basically reassess that document every, I think it was 17 or 19 years. So you already had people that were in that era understanding that this thing was never meant to last as long as it's lasted. Um, so, I mean, that's a, a huge myth that we have to get past that somehow that, that document is not uh, uh, something that should be rewritten. Um, Colombia was their courts. So you had people using the court system and somehow had favorable people looking to understand the need to involve their legal system in a rights of nature way. The same thing happened in India, uh, where it was really the, the courts. So. You've had a mix of kind of like legislation and judicial decisions, um, you know, to sort of bring that notion forward. And so that's been that's been good because it's kind of added to the, you know, to the energy. I'm currently working with a group of people internationally, mainly wetland scientists who are advocating for the rights of wetlands. So looking at that particular ecosystem and just like, um, you know, uh, beaver versus elk versus, you know, salmon, uh, they may be all part at some point, you know, interacting with the same ecosystem. They do have different needs, right? They have different sort of elements to them, different qualities. So river systems, for instance, have different needs than wetlands. And so there's a need to sort of articulate what is it that makes a viable wetland. And so there's been a lot of work to sort of articulate that in a right standpoint. And now this collection of people is trying to get notice to policymakers and whomever else that this is the direction we need to go. And I find that fascinating because these are people who've largely been working with an existing system similar to ours in the US. You know, what's about the regulation stuff and what can we do to protect things under this regulatory scheme? And um, they've seen the shortcomings of that and are now putting a lot of energy into, you know, pushing this paradigm around the protection of, of wetlands. So. There's a lot out there, um, but yeah, there's just this need to sort of coalesce that more in a more effective manner. Um, and that's, that's not an easy thing to do because, you know, we're also, we're so uh, hooked to the system with, um, you know, the jobs that we need, uh, or for a younger person coming out of college, you know, the debt that you're laden with, or because of the, you know, the poor reality of our healthcare system, you know, one one calamity and it doesn't even need to be a major one and suddenly you have tremendous debt you know from from your healthcare situation so those are all things that limit our possibility of coming together yes and those um, profiteers are just taking it out of our pockets you know and it's all legal for them to do that yeah, yeah. so we've, we've got some big obstacles but not ones that i don't think are are surmountable and um, you know, back to what you asked earlier, you know, if people working on timber issues and people working on immigrant issues and people working on healthcare issues and people working on, you know, housing issues and people working on wage issues, you know, doesn't mean don't 
be advocates, don't be the best advocate for your specific issue area, but we need to open up some more space to come together more collectively. And not just through the electoral cycle, which is largely where a lot of those groups funnel into, right? There's this ask to vote for this person for governor, or this person for Congress. And, you know, it's largely where our collective action comes uh, through, but very rarely are we sitting around the table or, you know, jumping on Zoom together and having collective talks to say, you know what, it's the same system, it's that same legal system, it's the same governmental system that we all run into. Um, what would it look like if we came together and started to address a different kind of system um, and do it collectively? Like what? I mean, what would be the first step that we should do and when should we do it? And, and how do we how do we mobilize ourselves to, to even start this process? Yeah, I think the I think the first place is is just kind of like what we're doing here, right? It's got to start with conversation. It's got to start with people sharing and unpacking, challenging one another, whatever it is, but but literally trying to see one another. Because um, that's another way that the system can easily control us if we stay within our within our issue arenas. You know, I'm doing this, you're doing that. Sometimes I kind of pay attention to you, sometimes you pay attention to me. And you know, we all think our our project's the best, and which is fine. Um, but if we're all tethered to the same structure, why are we not? And we all articulate it from our own viewpoint. How can we not see that as really a collective reality here? So, I think finding those moments to have these kind of conversations is probably the, the starting point. And then eventually, you know, we've got to organize to propose a different reality, and that could mean in a place like Oregon. Uh, elements of changing the Oregon Constitution, for instance, um, uh, perhaps about empowering, uh, you know, communities to have greater say, not to drop below standards, but to raise standards. You know, if you had the capability to dictate how to raise standards, what would that look like? Or, you know, the project that the Oregon Community, Community Rights Network is engaging in is you have a legal doctrine called state ceiling preemption. There's a difference between floor preemption and ceiling preemption. So floor is when the state says, well, here are the standards, okay? Let's say for forestry stuff, here are the standards. They're pretty minimal. You know, you can't spray within 500 feet of a home, you know, kind of thing like you mentioned earlier. But, you know, what would it look like if the community said, well, that standard is not actually good enough. We're gonna raise that standard, all right? Um, if you were to try to do that now, you'd be punished for doing so because the state preempts you at the local level from raising those standards, right? They've set a ceiling with that floor in essence. So that floor becomes a ceiling, like here's the minimum, but you can't go above it. We've explicitly written out the fact that, you know, you in Douglas County or you in Jackson County or you in Lincoln County don't have the authority to have a higher standard, despite your amount of evidence says we shouldn't be spraying at all, let alone within 500 feet yet you're telling us that we can't protect ourselves. And that, that, that preemption doctrine, that ceiling preemption is in things like uh, living wage, for instance. Right now, the state sets the minimum wage and you in Eugene or Bend or LeGrand, if you decide that, hey, that's not really adequate to really compensate people so they could actually live and survive, we're gonna raise the standard of what we pay people within our community you wouldn't be allowed to do that today in Oregon. You, you are preempted. That's the state has set a ceiling on that. So we can unpack all kinds of issues of which preemption comes into play. That's another thing which to bring people around the table to say, well, what if we had that? What if there was a different way? We're sure we have minimum standards, but if we wanna raise the standards, we should be allowed to do so. Because right now what happens, that timber industry, uh, other, you know, the, 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 the tech industry, the developer industry, they they don't need to bother with going to Roseburg or Bend or LaGrand or Ashland or Portland because they just have to go to Salem. Because if they can control Salem, they control everything else. And they are the ones who can then convince those legislators to set those standards, to put that preemption in place, to disallow you to have anything to do to influence the standards around you know, pesticide spraying or whether or not they, you should have GMO seed and all the complications and corporate control that comes with that. So there are arenas in which we can get people together to start these discussions. And then I think there's substantive action that we can take collectively to really change some of these fundamental things that are really blocking us from having viable communities, the quality of life we deserve, 
not, not again, just for humans, but for all the other species we're relying on a healthy ecosystem that yes. we, for their own sake, but so many of those species are actually making us more viable and healthy right. and sustainable, uh, whether we realize it or not. And so, yeah, there, there are some real things that could be worked on, but the first step is just literally getting people to, to want to come together to talk and to see the viability of it and then start really working towards it. Uh, and that's not an easy thing to do because we get very comfortable in our own arenas. We get comfortable in our own practices. And it's it's often difficult to, to conceive of the fact that, man, we may have to dig deeper here than we already are digging. Well, isn't that sort of what happened in Lincoln County when they actually came together, did a lot of work and passed an initiative to ban aerial herbicide spraying in some instances in Lincoln County? What was that, about two years ago? I believe it was the state preemption issue that you were talking about that pulled that out from under them so they lost that after the public voted for it state preemption said no you can't have it isn't that what happened yeah no that's that's pretty much it so they they you know there's a lot of big elements there so here you had people county where Carol von Strom has lived for for decades now and has been an advocate and has had some victories in the sense of protecting at least land that's controlled by the federal government um Yes. But yeah, so, so, and it, it's very interesting that like people, you know, as, as, you know, in some ways, as information has become easier to get at, I think people in a lot of cases, in a good way, have become more informed, right? So people, the general public, I think was pretty well informed in Lincoln County of the effects of aerial spray. And so when that community rights group came together and said, well, we don't want aerial spray, and we're going to write a law that says that it made again it's common sense people are like yeah why why do we want to expose us and the fish the wildlife and the trees and all these other things to something that is, is literally toxic warfare and so they did their due diligence you know they practiced democracy which people think we have uh and got their law voted in and then suddenly you had corporate interests for the timber industry sue the county saying sorry people of lincoln county despite your practicing uh, democracy besides practicing your right to self-determine what happens in your community on the grounds of protecting the environment. Also, the rights of nature was part of that law. So when the lawsuit came, you know, our organization helped represent Lincoln County, the community rights group, at least, who intervened in that case. We also tried to get the Siletz River watershed to be recognized in the legal case, which is not what happens today, right, in environmental issues you have to be harmed or an organization has to come in and just sort of show something on, on behalf of the ecosystem, but we never really see the ecosystem. And so here's that, that legal cultural shift stuff like, wow, yeah, why isn't the river system in court to, to basically say, this is why all this stuff is harmful to me, therefore the law should, be, should stand in stopping the aerial spray. Uh, the court unfortunately didn't let the Siletz into the case, but the citizens group, the community rights group was, but yeah, exactly it. So the hammer that came down was, sorry, you've been preempted. The state controls everything to do with forestry practices, including the use of aerial spraying of pesticides and herbicides. You have overstepped your authority. You can't, in, in essence, jettison the law. And that's an, a great example of, well, we know, not just in Lincoln County, but others in Douglas County, Lane County, other counties, that this is literally you know, toxic warfare going on and you're telling us we can't protect ourselves. Well, a big piece of that is that that ceiling preemption or that preemption coming into play, blocking you from having a higher standard. But the interesting thing is when we look at movements, the suffrage movement, the abolitionist movement, civil rights movement, they all started local and it was all about challenging things local. And eventually there was enough energy that built to the state level and say into the federal level. And you know, I think we're on the same course here that if we're going to want a nature-centric existence, if we're going to want to challenge uh, capitalistic ways, we got to build from the ground up despite the barriers of state law or whatever else it is, because just because a law it's a law doesn't make it right or just. And that's been the case with every other movement, right? They've challenged unjust law. They broke law to change law. I mean, it's always an element of big movements. And I think we're in a big move. I know we're in a big movement stage whether we can get there and get over ourselves because we've also been very well indoctrinated and become very obedient to if it's a law 
well, I guess we can't do anything, right? We've been, we've been very obedient to that. And I think we have to build the energy to say, well, again, just because it's law doesn't make it right. And if it's not right, we have to challenge it in all the kinds of ways that we feasibly can, uh, including breaking laws when, when they really aren't representing the people, or in this case, not just the people, but the very ecosystems that we rely upon to survive, not yeah. just today, but in the future. Right, right. It's an issue for sure. So what do you know about rights of nature conservation easements? Yeah, it's a, it's a concept that we had developed a few years back, um, mainly as the understanding that you'll often be in, in jurisdictions where you, you just either don't have the initiative process, for instance, like Lincoln County. And so then you have elected bodies that sort of control and maintain the status quo. So therefore, you know, legal change within a jurisdiction just isn't going to happen. So the conservation easement idea is to say, well, we still live under this property ownership reality in this country. You know, what if I, as a property owner, you know, put my property into a conservation easement, which is a common thing that's been around for a number of decades. People put their property in an easement um, in order to keep it largely from being developed or undermined, you know, for, for its own environmental health past their lifetime even exactly so it just carried it carries with the property deed yeah. so if you're the new owner you have to you know follow the accords of that particular easement well the rights of nature easement is is really taking that conservation easement idea and putting rights of nature as part of the easement in there so that we start to you know even further evolve this idea of protecting land in this case from this rights-based standpoint that we're really being cognizant of you know, the sentientness, the viability of ecosystems from this rights of nature perspective. And so there've been a couple of places, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, there's a woman who owned property on the island of Kauai. Uh, there's been a couple of places where people have, you know, taken their land and put it into this rights of nature conservation easement. And so that it's, I mean, it's, it's good from the standpoint of, you know, again, protecting that small spot, but it doesn't really ultimately get us to where we need to go, which is the, the bigger systems change. But I think it's at least given some sense of people to think about, well, what could it be differently? And people are often saying, well, what can I do? And so there, there have been some of these individuals who've decided it's worth foregoing the, the financial viability of developing this piece of property in the name of really the future. And, and I'm going to, you know, change the legal status now to that to include rights of nature. Okay. What haven't we talked about that we should have? <laughs> uh, we covered a lot of ground, Francis. Um, yeah, I guess as you're, as, as we've been talking, I'm, I'd be curious to kind of know what, you know, what's bubbling up in your own head around just the feasibility of, or even the viability of the possibility of, could we have a different existence here? And, and I know it's hard the longer you've been in it to, to say, well, that's just, that's just never going to happen. But um, yeah, just kind of curious what, what you've been thinking about for this last hour. Well, some of my right-wing neighbors talk about that darn federal um, Endangered Species Act. And if they could just get rid of that Endangered Species Act, they could do so much more profit making and logging you know so in a way they're talking about a federal preemption to what they want to do a local community wise but i understand that we don't have to worry about that yeah no i think that's right i think it's about i think ultimately it's going to come down to what we value right and and right yes. now what what ends up being the predominant value which then gets um authorized into law is to, to see the world in a very materialistic way, in a very profiteering way. Uh, and then everyone becomes indentured to that, you know, all the way down to the community level. And we just can't see a different reality. You know, the, you know, industrial, industrial uh, agriculture, you know, the factory farm stuff, yes. you know, the, 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 the individual who, you know, runs that on behalf of the corporation is, is basically a, a serf because they're, they're dictated to from the top down about, how they have to raise that particular animal and all the, the, the various feeding schedules and the other inoculations or whatever it is. Um, but if that animal dies before it is rendered, you know, into the, the meat products, well, suddenly now it's the responsibility of that, of that individual. So the corporation wipes their hands clean of it. And they, in so many industries, we've found ourselves so interlocked to it 
that you know we're thinking about our own survivability right as the individual and so you can see why people get into this mindset of well yeah if we get rid of the, the endangered species act i can make more money because that's what the system's telling me that's where my worth is right yeah and so I, that is a huge value system that has to shift which i think rights of nature can be that so for those people the shift becomes that no, we don't have to be part of that. We can still have economic viability, but in a way that isn't corporate controlled and undermining our own existence. Um, but in a, in a practical function, the, the idea is, sure, you could still have, you know, minimums, right? So if the Endangered Species Act is a minimum, that gets maintained because it's made it up to that federal level if we're going to have this federal, state, local connectivity. Um, but what we're saying is, we need greater ability from the local to push up significant innovations because we can see that we're not getting the state to pay attention and the federal is not paying attention. Why are we written out at the local level from being innovators for what we need? What I mean by innovators, everything you just described about timber practices, like why the heck hasn't that been dealt with 40 years ago? Well, we know because it's very, very difficult. It's very controlled. Um, and the local level is the least empowered to be advocates. And I'm not just talking about your elected officials, but the people itself. So Lincoln County, as your example earlier, Lincoln County passed this law for very sound reasons, and then they got punished for it. The state punished them for, for protecting themselves and protecting the environment. They punished them for having a higher standard of environmental protection than what the state says is, is sufficient when we all know that it's insufficient. And that has to change. Now, is the state that punished him or did the timber industry start that punishment and succeed? Would the state have sued him if it wasn't for the timber industry? The state could have. Yeah. Um, the state did not. But there have been cases where the state has gone after communities, communities that we've worked with as well. I see. So we have, we have a community that passed a ban on an injection well from the fracking industry. So. Wow. It, hydraulic fracturing, they produce toxic waste. Yes. And the geniuses decided, well, we're just gonna inject it in the ground, often yeah. passing through people's you know, aquifers and wells. <laughs> and this town said, wait a second, you know, that that's a bad idea. Um, and so they passed a law, community rights law, rights of nature law saying you can't. So they got sued by the corporate interest, understandably saying, hey, we want to profiteer and you're telling us we can't. They also got sued by the state uh, for again, having a higher standard than what the states is allowable. But I of see. course, the state standards are largely driven by industry, right? Because industry yes. draft. Oregon's law dealing with pesticide use is almost a verbatim template law put out by ALEC. So the American Legislative Exchange Council, which is a big corporate lobbyist for mm -hmm. lots of industries, wrote the law that Oregon adopted, I think it was in the 70s. Um, but it's almost verbatim the law that was drafted by this lobbyist group on behalf of the chemical companies and the timber companies. And your legislature adopted it. They didn't come up with it, but they adopted it on behalf of the industry. Um, and yeah. this is what we're up against. I liked what you said about the potential for community forests. That why are these, why is my forest? Warehouser, which is actually a real estate investment company. It's, so I really like the idea of a large community force where this community, you know, would have jobs, million opportunities and use of the products that they need. And yet they're right, living right there so they can protect the nature that that forest protects also. Exactly. Right. Because now you're now you're now it's like, all right, we know we have to keep it viable and sustainable. But now that it's staying here you know, we're getting the benefits from it. So therefore we're gonna be the stewards of protecting it for the sake of protecting it because our livelihood is now dependent on it in a very different way. And one that's actually real because capitalism is, is, is unfortunately a, a fantasy construct that is having real consequences. <laughs> like it's, there's, we live on, you know, people often say, we, you know, that they, they're, they're operating as if resources are infinite, including that you can just somehow cut forests down and replant them, which is so not true. And so, yeah, I think this is exactly how the manifestation of a, of a nature-centric or rights of nature reality comes into play, of which then it's, again, not about separating human communities, but it's more, 
fully integrating human communities for the benefit of humans, you know, living from nature. But it's, then it's adding in that we live in nature, we live with nature, and we live as nature, right? It's got to be all of that. And right now, what gets hyper protected is just the living from, but not from in a manner that's really relational or in a responsible way. It's really about that extraction destructive way. And that's the very thing we have to break and, you know, send the way of the dodo bird. Well, I look forward to working on this more in the future. And I hope everyone else jumps in on working on this too. It's a very noble project, rights of nature and community rights. So Francis, thank, thank you, you. For, for being there for us as a legal defense fund. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I appreciate the time. And uh, yeah, people can find more at, at CELDF org or at the orcrn.org which is the oregon community rights network uh, for oregon more oregon specific information well um thank you so much we have been talking with kai husky with the community environmental legal defense fund about some very interesting topics and and kai i'm going to put your um contact information down in the description here this has been conservation today i am your host Francis Etherington, and we'll be back someday. Welcome to the U.S. Occupation To win the hearts and minds Defend all humankind Tell the banks and the corporations We're here to occupy the U.S.A. Congress and the hedge funds Stole our houses and our pensions Conspired to steal our health care at conservative conventions. We're here to stand our ground. We demand our jobs with justice. We're 99% in charge. Now you'll just have to trust us. Stop the Excel pipeline and its tracks across the heartland. Reject the filthy energy extracted from the tar sands. Clinton and Trans Canada exposed before the nation. Corruption forces us to organize a new invasion. Welcome to the U.S. occupation. To win the hearts and minds, defend all humankind. Tell the banks and the corporations, we're here to occupy the U.S.A. This occupation won't be one with guns or ammunition. Armed with creativity and righteous indignation We do all the work, so we have the power to stop it No workers, no work, not until we share the profits Strengthening their ties We have struggled far too long Now let this be a sign One percent in power Meet the other Ninety-nine Welcome to the U.S. occupation To win the hearts and minds Defend all humankind Tell the banks and the corporations We're here to occupy the Democratize the youth.